This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The strategy outlines how USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, is going to be able to measure and improve development and humanitarian assistance outcomes through the use of digital technology. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. 5G technology, or fifth-generation mobile technology, is expected to have tremendous impact on international development, from helping students in rural areas have better access to distance learning to improving economic opportunities. I spoke with now former USAID Deputy Administrator Bonnie Glick about 5G, how the agency is working to create secure digital ecosystems in developing countries and competition with China. This interview was recorded before she departed the position. Deputy Administrator Bonnie Glick, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Delighted to be here, Beverly. Well, first, let's talk about USAID and the release of its first ever digital strategy earlier this year. What's in that strategy and how will it impact the humanitarian assistance that USAID provides? You know, that's a great question. And a lot of times people question me about why did USAID even need to issue a digital strategy? What's that all about? Because, you know, what don't you guys just deliver sacks of grain? And the truth is, no, that's not all we do. USAID is a 21st century agency. And the premise of our new digital strategy is that every form of development or humanitarian assistance has a digital component. And that as the world moves online, as we're all seeing now with COVID in particular, this digital component is only going to continue to grow. So in effect, The strategy outlines how USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, is going to be able to measure and improve development and humanitarian assistance outcomes through the use of digital technology. To do this, we've laid out really ambitious goals for USAID to partner with the private sector as well as other stakeholders so that we can increase internet inclusion and private sector digital investments in target countries. Digital, as we all know, has become even more important in these days. People in both developed economies as well as in emerging market countries have increased radically the use of remote education, digital medical services, and of course, as we all know, remote work. And so I'm excited that in the midst of this unprecedented global pandemic, we'll soon be able to release USAID's digital health vision for action. And this is going to be our first sector specific, the health sector application of the digital strategy. And as we all know, it couldn't be more timely given the circumstances that we're in. You asked, Beverly, how it'll change or impact the humanitarian assistance that USAID provides. 
And people all over the world, I believe, will feel the impact in small sometimes, but really significant ways. When it comes to our ability to determine that we're reaching populations for impact, we're going to be able to measure that more succinctly in a more targeted way. But then we'll also see things like faster download speeds that will make it easier for a child, say, in a, in a Nigerian village to have a video chat with a teacher who might be located in another city. Or we'll have more robust systems that will allow doctors, say in India, to analyze x-rays or other medical feedback in a more expeditious way. And they might even be able to analyze medical tests for other countries as well. We'll also see things like mobile money transactions, which will be more secure in countries all over the world. And this can all happen if the technology that's used is inclusive, open, and secure. I'll give you an example of where we began the really robust use, and we've only grown on this platform. And that was, you may remember, the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. During that Ebola outbreak, we helped the government of Liberia to develop a digital health information system that would help doctors and nurses in their response efforts to the Ebola outbreak. But now, today in 2020, the government of Liberia has been able to repurpose that original digital health information system that we called M-Hero, like mobile hero, into a two-way information sharing platform to send weekly updates on COVID-19 and to support early case detection. These kinds of life-saving innovations are possible not just in Liberia, but really all over the world as part of the digital strategy. And USAID plans to promote this type of digital development worldwide. That is amazing. And before I go on to 5G, I want to circle back to something you said about the health-related part of the digital strategy that you're going to be rolling out. Is it too early to ask about how that might work and, and the goals of that effort? No, it's not too early. It is so exciting to me. What we're going to be rolling out is our plans and our vision, but also asking for our partners and the private sector to contribute their goals and their visions to how we can make a more robust digital health system, health information system worldwide. Because with COVID-19, we have seen the urgency of communicating information as quickly as possible, as well as for being able to account for medical incidents. And so USAID has ideas that we're going to roll out as components of the digital health strategy, which will incorporate and build on platforms that we've used already 
but really what we want to extract from our partners around the world is what are the best practices that you're using in terms of your approach to digital health. So it'll be with a focus on things that we're all using around the world now, like telehealth, telehealth consultations, mental health consultations with doctors and and practitioners virtually. But I know that there's so much more out there and I'm anxious and eager and excited to see what we hear from people all over the world. Wow, that will truly be helpful in the health sphere, especially given this pandemic. Let me ask you, where does 5G fit into all of this? And and how important is it when you're working in emerging markets and in developing countries? I love your question because it's an issue that's a particular passion of mine and something I've worked really hard to highlight during my time at USAID. Again, people don't think of USAID as being a cutting-edge technology powerhouse, but we are, as an agency, the largest bilateral foreign assistance donor in the world. And so we're a powerhouse in the development space. Why shouldn't we be a powerhouse in representing the United States government in what are the cutting edge issues around the world? And the cutting edge issues as they fall into the natural space of USAID are things like 5G in emerging markets. So we at AID are focusing on 5G by working jointly with other U.S. government agencies so that we can all synchronize our respective efforts in areas like financing 5G, policy advice and counsel to governments that are making decisions on their 5G or even in many cases 4G advancement, technical assistance, regulatory advice. All of this is meant to equip countries with the necessary tools so that they can adopt secure and reliable networks from trusted partners. We've also facilitated investments in secure network connectivity by collaborating very closely with the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation and with the State Department And we're mobilizing in developing countries their participation, those countries' participation in what are known as open radio access networks in as part of their ecosystem. Open radio access networks, or ORAN, is technology that potentially has the ability to leapfrog a country from, say, 2G or 3G into 5G through software enhancements and without requiring necessarily the large-scale infrastructure that's required of a 5G or a 4G build-out. So this is an important and exciting space for us because it's where emerging markets can begin to be operating on a level playing field with developed economies. And under this administration's leadership, we don't plan to sit on the sidelines because what we're seeing is 
the People's Republic of China, along with its state surveillance entities, are attempting to coerce the developing world into using Chinese-based technologies like Huawei or ZTE. And these are fundamentally unsafe technologies. So as part of the whole of government effort to promote a clean network initiative that's being driven by the State Department, we are full and engaged partners in that U.S. government effort. And I want to follow up on a couple of things that you, that you mentioned there. Before we talk about Huawei and ZTE, you mentioned this whole of government approach and USAID just recently signed an MOU with the FCC on 5G that's targeted at addressing the whole of government issue around 5G. Can you talk about how this agreement allows for integration and maybe a more unified approach to 5G, if that's what I'm hearing you say? Sure. One of the things that uh, we found when we started talking with our partners across the U.S. government was our approach is not integrated, at least not fully integrated. And when I talk with my counterparts in agencies like the Export-Import Bank or the Development Finance Corporation or Commerce or State Department, we all kind of speak the same language. But 5G is a different concept to all of us, and we are not 5G experts necessarily. The true experts in this technology in the U.S. government reside in the Federal Communications Commission. And so we invited FCC to join our discussions about 5G in emerging markets. And one of the ways that we decided would be a great way to highlight the interconnectedness of the U.S. government and the alignment to this whole of government approach to 5G around the world would be for us at AID to sign an MOU with FCC to talk about how we can leverage off of each other's strengths. So I signed an MOU with FCC Chairman Ajit Pai to focus on how we can collaborate in working with emerging market countries to make the decisions that are coming their way when it comes to a rollout of next generation broadband connectivity. And the really cool thing, Beverly, at least I think it's cool, the really cool thing is uh, that When you look at what FCC is charged with doing here in the United States, one of the areas that's of critical importance to them is rural broadband connectivity. And when you think about emerging markets who may not yet be at 4G, there are a lot of similarities between our rollout of broadband connectivity in rural America to the rollout of broadband connectivity in emerging markets. So there was a natural alignment. And part of this is just being able to see above your silos uh, and determining that, hey, this makes logical sense for cross-governmental collaboration. 
that is really an important point to make there. And related to 5G, there are some who say that it's kind of at the center of a great power competition between the U.S. and China because of Huawei's influence in in parts of Africa. So let's talk a little bit about that. You mentioned the concerns about security and privacy. So let's start there and, and talk about what those security concerns are. Sure. One of the things that I think people don't realize is that in the People's Republic of China in 2017, the Chinese Communist Party rolled out a law that is called the National Intelligence Law. And under this law, it requires Chinese companies, whether they're state-owned enterprises or uh, you could call them parastatal companies like Huawei or ZTE. But it requires those companies to cooperate with Chinese security services without due process protections. So what does this mean? It means that the so-called private companies in China are required by law to provide the Chinese Communist Party with any data including what we refer to in the U.S. as personally identifiable information, or PII, as well as trade secrets, intellectual property, national security information, you name it. Uh, these companies must provide that information to the Chinese Communist, Communist Party on demand whenever the government wants it. So we talk about the need for a clean network. And when we talk about a clean network, we're talking about data protection, secure cloud, and fundamentally about open, reliable, and secure internet. So this is our concern, and I do believe it's a very real concern that if more people were aware of what we're talking about when we say that these are non-secure networks, if they fully understand that an element of the Chinese Communist Party is designed to grab information without due process, they would be equally as concerned. So for countries in the developing world, that's a critical issue. When we talk about it, we say potentially by setting up a Huawei network, you're setting up a, a backdoor in a way that you maybe didn't intend to do to have your data information, potentially national security secrets, shared directly with the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Is that what you really thought that you were planning to do when you signed up with Huawei? So the model that we're promoting from the United States is a secure model. We call it the clean network. It isn't solely or even necessarily majority American technology. Rather, there are over 50 countries 170 global telecommunications companies, and dozens and dozens of technology companies like Oracle or Cisco or Fujitsu or Rakuten, and so many others that have signed onto the clean network. And this is a model that's being openly challenged by our competitors and our adversaries who, unlike the United States, plan to use the new digital technologies, as I mentioned, 
to engage in economic espionage or surveillance or, worst of all cases, human rights abuses. So when countries are making their next generation wireless technology decisions, we look at them in the emerging markets as being kind of like the center of this battleground where initiatives like China's Digital Silk Road offer communication systems, but those are insecure and they're available to repress populations and to censor internet content. Ultimately, all of this damages our own national interests as well as the national interests of those countries. Huawei and ZTE are very influential in Africa. How has the U.S. been able to convince countries in the developing world in Africa and other parts of the world that the clean network that the U.S. is promoting is the way to go? I'm sure there have been conversations uh, about this at the highest levels. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And a lot of this has been, even despite COVID-19, a lot of this has involved direct conversations, either with ambassadors here in Washington from developing countries, but also through a lot of travel being logged to foreign countries to talk very directly about what the threat is that emanates from the PRC and that will directly impact them. You know, our companies, American companies, Western companies, are used to operating in competitive free markets that are free of government control. It allows them to innovate. It allows for the best products always to win out at the end of the day when you have a level playing field. And it, the truth is, in this day and age, we often don't know what those products or technologies are going to look like. So when we talk with countries around the world, we talk to them about the importance of secure digital ecosystems and the impacts on potentially their national sovereignty if they opt for non-secure digital infrastructure, because that can undermine what we tout all the time at USAID, it can undermine their self-reliance. And that to us sets countries back potentially years in terms of their development journeys to become themselves developed economies, good trading partners, and one day donor countries. So when we talk to countries in Africa or in Asia or Latin America, we talk about ways that we can help to create. And when I say we, I mean the U.S. government, other donors, uh, the private sector, ways that we can help secure their digital ecosystems. And we're advising countries throughout the world on things like how do you write your network security protocols or what are your e-commerce or communications and telecommunications policies? We're working with them to promote innovative solutions to network security questions like ORAN, uh, the Open Radio Access Network, and other forthcoming technologies. So the conversations are a lot of give and take, 
This is where our MOU with FCC comes into play because they too are going to countries around the world and meeting with ministers of information, communications, and technology to talk with them about what are going to be your policies moving forward. Let us help you to shape the policies that make the best sense for your country on its journey to self-reliance. And one quick follow-up, we've talked a lot about emerging markets, but some of our allies and partners have grappled with the 5G issue and working with Huawei, right? Yeah, for sure. Actually, most of the discussion that we're hearing in the marketplace centers on countries that are on the cusp of 5G, which are almost entirely advanced economies. So we're thrilled when we see that close allies like the UK or France are phasing out their Huawei infrastructure in the coming years. It's not an easy thing to do, yet they realize Probably, Beverly, because of the impact that COVID-19 has had on their countries, they realize that the insecurity that is built into a Huawei network is too much for them to tolerate as they move toward 5G. The promise of 5G, which is what a lot of people talk about, the, the promise of 5G is something that so many of us can't even contemplate. And I was in a conversation where someone was talking to me about Uber and how none of us could have imagined Uber, say, 10 or 15 years ago, the concept of it, of crowdsourcing and data and geosystem locations of both drivers and passengers and uh, setting up the payment systems around it. And all of this was unfathomable until we hit 4G technology. And when we hit 5G, it's going to be an order of magnitude difference. So what are the things that you can't even think of today that are going to be enabled by 5G? And when you talk to your allies, whether, you know, UK or France, I just returned from Finland and Estonia. When you talk to your allies about 5G, we're all sort of sitting and waiting in wonder at what will come next and recognizing how critical it is to have those systems be secure. Very, very important points there. Before I let you go, I want to shift the conversation a bit to talk about your background because it's very, very fascinating. You spent 12 years as a foreign service officer and as I understand it, speak six languages in addition to English. Is that right? I will say that I have studied six languages in addition to English, and I speak them when called upon to do so. But one of the things that is hard with any language is that if you don't practice it, you do lose it. The marvelous thing about living in Washington, D.C. is that there are so many people from all over the world that it's relatively easy to find someone with whom you can just have a what I call a taxi cab level conversation with the pleasantries, maybe uh, share recipes or share the latest thing that you are doing at work, all of which I've had the great pleasure of doing in my travels. 
And what were some of the leadership lessons and takeaways that you learned while you were serving abroad that perhaps are helpful in your job these days? That's a great question. You know, the leadership lessons that I learned when I was a junior and mid-career officer in the State Department were probably primarily around American leadership and the role that our country plays in the world. And to be a young foreign service officer was the honor, honestly, the honor of a lifetime because it allowed me to represent our country to other countries. And in my particular case, they were countries, Ethiopia and Nicaragua, who were both coming out from under the yoke of communist dictatorships. And they were looking for what is the combination of things, of stuff? What is it that makes America that great democracy? And one of the things that, again, when I talk about it as an honor, that really dilutes uh, what it was to have had the opportunity to share with leaders in countries that are on the cusp of democracy how the United States ticks how it is that we have struggled ourselves with social issues, with racial issues, with gender equality issues over the course of our 200 plus years was a tremendous opportunity for me. And I think these are the kinds of things that have shaped me as a leader, both in industry as well as in government. Because you did spend quite a bit of time in the private sector, as I understand it, working at IBM, and you co-authored three patents. So fundamentally, Beverly, you have shown that I'm a nerd. And as I, I like to say to my engineer son, nerds rule. But at the end of the day, I still will need his help in transmitting this file to you. So the three patents that I co-authored, also a true honor working at IBM, which is a patent leader for something like 27 or 28 years in a row around the world. That is the seat of innovation and creativity and invention that was really mind-boggling for me, but that embraced the special skills that I brought to it. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Deputy Administrator Bonnie Glick, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Beverly, I loved every minute. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thanks to you for joining us. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.